in Leviticus, yeah. right, it said, I mean, there's any number of sins for which, like, the penalty is death. Yeah. And how does that square with sacrifices that are made to bring people back as opposed to you've done X, Y, or Z, so penalty is a stoning. Right. And translating that into the New Testament for, like, those things aren't where you're, like, making a sacrifice to come back anymore, but this is, like, you're separated out in God. Yeah. So um, what, what's your... Yeah, Paul, Paul actually brings up an issue like this in 1 Corinthians 5, um, and, and it's the same logic without the same sort of precise legal result, where he recognizes there's no, so in 1 Corinthians 5, um, one of the uh, Gentile, uh, non-Israelite, Gentile, non-Israelite, uh, a Gentile is sleeping with his dad's wife. So it sounds like he's sleeping with his mother-in-law, it sounds like. Um, and Paul is flabbergasted. He says, this is, this is terrible. And, and he uses the precise Greek language that comes out of Leviticus 18. Um, so Leviticus 18 prohibits that. You can't sleep with your mom's wife or your dad's wife. Um, and Paul hears that this is happening in the Corinthian course congregation and says, uh, he's, this guy isn't even repenting. And so he says, um, he says, remove him from the community. Um, now, that's the important part, though. It, <clears throat> the inclusive part seems to be that had he repented and just stopped doing the thing um, and repented of it, then that would have been sufficient for Paul. Because um, he says so. He goes, this guy didn't even repent. Um, so it looks like instead of, they're not like in, in the New Testament, Paul doesn't want, if, if you commit a sin for which there's a death penalty in the, in the Old Testament, Paul doesn't exhort his Gentile congregants to execute each other. He just says, um, because actually here's the interesting part, this is what, because this is what you've already done. Your baptism was your death with the Messiah. So Paul says, you're supposed to die every day. So repentance is like a mini-death every time. Repentance is like a mini-death to yourself. So repentance is sufficient in other words. Does that answer your question? So, in other words, the legal, the legal case, there's a few ways to answer it. In Leviticus 18, there's certain things that you, if you do, death penalty. In Paul, Paul still, in the, Paul's letters, he still prohibits those things, but doesn't require the death penalty, instead requires uh, repentance. And if repentance is not exacted, at least from the example in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, then remove the person from the community. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 18. Uh, it, address the person, and if he doesn't repent, dress him again. If he doesn't repent, dress him again. And then if he doesn't repent, then remove him from the community. So, I, want to, I wanted to hear you talk more. So, like, we live, it's Pride Month, right? And um, all the issues that we're facing, we have to think about them critically. So, I hear you saying is, like, from the law to the gospel, Paul's affirmation of it, Christ's affirmation of it. The things that we see that we grew up in that are somewhat normative as far as being like sex is intended uh, to represent um, Christ in the church, yeah. male and female, all this other stuff. How do we think about people um, that say, I'm, I, I follow Christ right. and I affirm LGBTQ thinking? Like, like we can't go to them and say, oh, by the way, the Bible says, yeah, this, because they're saying they're looking at the same Bible and saying, right. I read this and I say that like everyone's in type thing. Right. 
And so how, how do we even think about that critically before even like dealing with them like practically? Right. That makes sense. Like yeah. some people come to the same text and they're saying, yeah, I read this, I read Romans 1, sure. whatever it is, I read 1 yeah. Corinthians 6. And uh, yeah, interpretation is a public, uh, in, so um, the Christian faith is a public, is a faith of, um, resulting from a public event, the crucifixion and resurrection of the Messiah. As a public event, it is uh, scrutinizable by public, uh, in other words, it's public truth, in other words, which means it's, you can argue about it. Um, because it's a, an event that is uh, um, uh, witnessed and consequently interpretable, um, it is consequently subject to uh, the, the, the kinds of, um, uh, it, it's, it's, it's subject to our own like, sort of intellectual you know, uh, wrestling. Um, that sort of uh, lens gets then applied to these kinds of texts where the text itself is not self-interpreting. No text is self-interpreting. Um, uh, all texts are just being interpreted. When you, when you read a text, you are interpreting it whether you know it or not. You're implicitly interpreting it. Um, so um, every, every text is, is being investigated. Um, and so similarly, when it comes to this issue then, the point is, is that yeah, I, I, there's a, a good number of um, uh, Protestant, worth saying that, uh, Protestant Christians um, who have come to different conclusions about some of these texts, and uh, so the first thing to do is you have to agree on the um, rules of engagement, as it were. So if one Protestant group just thinks, no, I, you know, the Bible, what the Bible says, um, is uh, unimportant to me. Well, then you can't have an engagement on it because it doesn't matter what, how you interpret the text. They, they, they would be happy to concede. Okay, yeah, that's fine. I don't care, right? Um, and um, believe it or not, those are actually the waters I swim in. Not me personally, actually. I mean, the crowds I swim in. It's typically, I'm typically engaging people who just are indifferent to the Bible and just kind of want to interpret it on historical grounds and then don't care about it sort of binding authority. Um, so that's so all you have to agree on the eight rules of engagement. So if the person already just thinks like yeah the, the biblical text isn't binding, then you're just not the conversation is not it's you know not going to go the ground one. Um, if they agree that it's binding, then you have an interpretation. You have a public debate or engagement about 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 the meaning of those texts, and um, in the same way that. We all communicate by shared assumptions, um, and we all come to the best approximation of what I must mean based on what I've said. That's how we also interpret ancient texts. So, for example, here's a good example. If I said the um, memorial will be held on September the 11th at 7 p.m., what do you think I'm saying? The 9-11 memorial. Yeah, we're going to have a memorial event commemorating, you know, the event and everything else. Um, why did you think that? Because you said September 11th. Yeah. Yeah, curveball. I said that in the year 2000. I don't know what it's for. Yeah, it couldn't. It's interesting. The one thing you all thought it meant, commemorating 9-11 or whatever, could not have meant that in the year 2000. Because our acts of communication are conditioned by our shared cultural assumptions. We all live in the same culture. We've been brought up in the same culture. 
I'm just making assumptions now, but let's assume we all live in the same culture um, because our assumptions about how life works and, and how communication occurs, um, our shared assumptions about culture shape what we assume we mean when we say X, Y, Z. So the 9-11 example, that's what probably lots of you thought I meant, something about symptom related. Mm -hmm. But that's because we're living in a culture drastically shaped by the events of 2001. If I had said that in the year 2000, it couldn't have meant that because the culture hadn't been shaped by that event yet. In other words, events shape culture, culture, uh, our vocabulary is shaped by our shared cultural assumptions, and you are always interpreting my words, um, and your interpretation of my words is based on your best approximation of what my words must mean on our shared assumptions of how language works. So if I said, she passed the bar, What did I mean? All the lawyers in here? Yep, there's so many lawyers in there. So I can probably sum up. These are all just playing language games. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so she passed, what is that? Okay, so she passed the bar, means she passed the bar again. What else could it be? She used to U-turn. She used to U-turn because she passed the drinking establishment. Yeah, yeah, she passed the drinking establishment. So it's because bar has seven, at least, known meanings in our language. I was thinking CrossFit. So, Colt, oh, no, nope. stop it. All right, so I'm glad you said it. Uh, glad you said it. Because uh, that's three, it's three different interpretations of the same sentence, depending on it, and what you, the, 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 the context of the sentence shapes the significance of the words. All of that's to say, the same logic <coughs> governs ancient communication. So that when we're reading an ancient text, in an ancient text, um, we have to, we at our stage of human history have to do a lot of really hard work to understand the historical culture of that time so that we know what those words would have signified to a reader or a hearer. So that when Paul says, hey, I don't permit a man to lie with another man, you're like, okay, well, what could he mean there, right? Does he mean you said, you can't sleep in the same sleeping bag or whatever, right? Um, when you look at it, you're like, well, this, this combination of Greek words, actually, Paul... As far as we know, there's no other Greek text that even uses that word. Paul very well may have made the word up. And it's based on a combination of words that comes straight out of Leviticus 18. And so in a context where he's alluding to Leviticus, and then the same context uses those words, doesn't it make sense that he would be alluding to Leviticus 18 and the thing that's prohibited there? That's sort of how the interpretation game goes, right? Um, someone who doesn't share those assumptions would come to a different interpretation. They would say, no, that word just means sort of uh, a, a, temp a temple prostitute. So that's, that's a common interpretation now for those who don't hold the traditional view. They say, no, Paul's not talking about same-sex behavior. Generally, he's talking about just prostitution. So he's forbidding prostitution. Um, so then, now what this other person has done is he, he or she has uh, provided an inter interpretation that you now have to weigh against the context. Just like we did, right? When I said pass the bar, well, assuming like there's clearly an assumed context that would help you interpret that, right? So if if, we, if I if I've made plans with all of you to go meet you that night, right? And then I say, oh, she passed the bar. Well, then you would know I you'd know as the one about the drinking establishment, right? If we were talking about whatever this person took the exam and they say, hey, she passed the bar, everyone knows what I mean, right? So you have to 
you have to, in other words, you have to locate the context that conditions the meaning of the words. And in the case of uh, arsenikoitai, which is the Greek word for men who lie with men, um, the surrounding context of Paul's words often derive from uh, things that are also prohibited in Leviticus. And in Leviticus 18, it's the same Greek words that um, Paul uses to prohibit uh, same-sex uh, behavior between men. Uh, deduction, he's alluding to Leviticus 18 and the thing that's prohibited there. Where does the interpretation of the temple prostitutes like come from? Like where does that interpretation? Uh, yeah. Where does that? Where does that? Because yeah. in 1 Corinthians 6 and 8, Paul does in fact. Notice how he's saying that first, or one. It's very British. Oh, it's very British. Yeah. Uh, don't, don't hate on Trump. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, I was, all, everybody in the UK freaked out when everyone made fun of Trump for that because we're like, oh, that's just how we say it. Um, so, uh, it's just, yeah, UK had it. Um, so they say one Corinthians. Um, for good reason, but I won't tell you because my wife will make fun of me. Um, she hates me. Okay, uh, your question was 1 Corinthians 6 and 8. Um, he does forbid temple prostitution with the Greek word pornos. Okay. I'm going to hear another word we get out of that. Um, uh, or porne, because it's a, a woman. So he says, don't stop visiting porne. Stop visiting prostitutes. Um, if you join yourself with a prostitute, don't you know you're already joined with Christ? And if you join with that prostitute, then you're like coupling Christ and that prostitute. Don't do that. Um, so because in 1 Corinthians 6 and 8, he's talked about prostitution. The, um, but he's using different words. Using different words. Yeah. Um, so using different words um, and and yeah, it's just it's Paul's a uh, Paul's a Jew who's a Pharisee who's trained in the law. Right. I mean, what what would he be appealing to? Um, what is his context? Like, what's, what's his context? And 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 that, that that's that's the other reason I think it's just like Paul's Paul's the, the ethic that Paul grew up with is the ethic of Leviticus. Leviticus Leviticus was Paul's ethical background, and so when he says a term that comes from Leviticus, it sounds like he's quoting Leviticus. Right? So I, I I'm, here's what I'm struggling with. I, I don't know. He's an attorney. I would like. Well, no. I, I uh, this, he's this asking really just, good questions. I'm also a, a I'm just a seeker, man. Um, I you know I think. Uh, what I struggle with is how do how do I uh, how do I interpret Leviticus like today? Yeah, you know what I mean, because you, your point's a great one, right? We're we're all in a certain context. We yeah. all understand things a certain way because we're in that context. As did folks in Leviticus and post Leviticus, like yeah. was Christ like this massive event that right. changed everything? So right. it didn't abolish the Levitical right. law, but like certainly portions like they're not killing animals anymore right. and spreading the blood and stuff. So right. it is. It, Similarly, like like today, yeah. if you take Leviticus and then Christ and then us, right? Like we're all in a different context, and so historically, I like the way you mapped it out. It's really helpful to understand, like it, it, it ties everything together very nicely. But um, but beyond the historical significance of it, um, we, we obviously can't read it and go, oh yeah, let's do these things, right? Yeah. Like, that's not. So how do we how do we implement something practical from from Leviticus, or how do we think about it? Yeah, thanks. That is a really, really good question. Um, Acts 15 um, is the text um, that I think shapes this uh, really, really well for us. Um, in the book of Acts, the first uh, eight or so chapters, 
the Jewish disciples of Jesus are carrying the message about Jesus out to the other Jews, right? Uh, because Israel has been in this state of like covenant plights, they need the covenant restoration. Now Jesus' Jewish disciples have just watched Jesus ascend into heaven. So now that Jesus is at God's right hand, uh, his father's right hand, um, you know, interceding for us, acting as our priests and everything. And they are, the, these Jewish disciples are taking this message about Jesus, about the covenant restoration that he performed, to other Jews of the area. And then eventually that message spreads even to the non-Jews. This message about Jesus spreads even to the non-Jews. That, that happens first in Acts, uh, some isolated incidents, but really takes off in Acts 10. Such that in, in Acts 10, Peter, a Jewish disciple, eats with some Gentiles, and some Gentiles receive the Holy Spirit. And Peter's like, I can't believe this. The Holy Spirit fell even on the Gentiles. That's what it says like over and over again, right? And then this news spreads to the Jerusalem council, and they're like, oh, man, I can't believe you ate with Gentiles. That's weird. But it sounds like that's because God's including them too. So that's good news. We don't want to mess with what God's doing. God's including the nations now. Like, that's good news. Um, so then they literally convene in order to have a count. And, and then, so now nations are being included. And then some Jews uh, go around to these Gentile communities who've begun to believe. These Jews go around and say, hey, unless you guys are circumcised according to the law of Moses, you can't, you can't be a part. And that's where Paul says, no, 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 that, that misses it, actually, because the nations belong as nations. God promised to bless the nations. And so if these Gentiles get circumcised, that's them becoming Jews. So for a Gentile to get circumcised is for him to, uh, this is why ethnicity was going to be one of the issues we talked about, for, the, for a Gentile to get circumcised is for a Gentile to Judaize, meaning to become a Jew. So for a Gentile to obligate himself to all facets of the law of Moses, including circumcision, is for that Gentile to become a Jew. And Paul says, no, they can't do that, because God made his promise to Abraham that he would bless the nations. And he can't bless the nations as nations if they become Jews. And so Paul's like ethnic reasoning in his legal reasoning in Romans 4. And so he says, don't get circumcised. So that's, that's the issue. So then they're like, okay, okay, we've at least solved, solved the circumcision one, but it still, it still brings it up, what are the Gentiles obligated to? And that's what Acts 15 is about. So Acts 15 says, what are the Gentiles obligated to do? We've got all these Gentiles who are now joining the covenantal people, but we don't know, like, what do they do? And we agree, okay, don't get circumcised, because that would, that would make them become Jews, and we don't need that, because God promised to bless them as nations, but now, what do they do? And uh, so they reason, and they come to the conclusion that, well, here's what they do. They um, don't commit uh, sexual immorality. They uh, don't eat things contaminated by idols, and they don't consume blood. Um, the blood pro prohibition, why do they apply the blood, blood prohibition? It's, it's life. It's it's got blood is the vehicle of life, and you don't mess with blood. It belongs to God. Don't mess with blood. Um, uh, don't don't do stuff with idols. That's reasonable because now you're devoted to the God of Israel and the sexual immorality stuff. Um, and again, the question is, what from the Mosaic law are we obligating to the Gentiles? And the the answer is food contaminated by idols. Sexual morality and uh, blood, uh, and so because they're because the assumed aspect of the debate is 
what aspects of the Mosaic law do they have to do? It's assumed that when they say sexual immorality, they mean sexual immorality as defined by the Mosaic law. So then the logic there, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, scriptural. They just come up, they, 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 read, they read the prophets together and they see that the prophets um, will, uh, that one, the prophets prophesied that one day the nations would join Israel and they would learn Israel's ways as they are built up in their midst. And so this is a long convoluted answer to get to this one really interesting part. So we'll go to Jeremiah 12, 15. Jeremiah 12, 15. I'll just read it. I have it. Okay, go ahead. And after I have plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them again to each to his heritage and each to his land. And the next verse. And it shall come to pass if they will diligently learn the ways of my people. Learn my ways. To swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Paul. Then they shall be built up in the midst of my people. Okay, they will, they, the Gentiles, will learn the ways of my people, it's Israel, and they will be built up in my midst. This is where we get this fascinating look into the ancient Jewish scriptural reading practices, where they understood uh, the meaning of certain texts based on shared vocabulary with other texts. So if this text uses all this vocabulary, and this text uses all this vocabulary, it's, it's reasonable to read them together, right? Um, so this text is one of the texts that they that James quotes. He says, okay, guys, um, we've come in Acts 15, when they're all talking about what are the Gentiles obligated to do. They say, okay, here's what they got to do, uh, um, as it is written in the prophets, and then he quotes a bunch of prophetic texts, some of which come from Amos, and some of which come from that text, Jeremiah 12. In Jeremiah 12, it says, these nations who join us will learn the ways of my people, and they will consequently be built up in my midst in this language here is used because they're now in the presence of God. And in Leviticus, this phrase is used four times. It says, it's when, 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 when God is giving the laws to his people, he says, okay, now this law, it doesn't just, it doesn't just apply to you guys, Israel. This law also applies to the foreigner who's in your midst. So like, you know, Sabbath. If you live in Israel, you've got to keep the Sabbath, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Because you live in God's land and you abide by God's rules, that sort of thing. If you're a Gentile who happens to live in the land of Israel, God doesn't care whether you keep like the dietary system. That's just for Israel. But there are a handful of laws that obligate even the foreigner who lives in my midst. That text, that precise vocabulary is used four times in Leviticus. And it's sexual impurity, food contaminated by idols, and the blood prohibition. So they get that language from Jeremiah where the nations will join in the restoration. They see that in my, in, that in my midst language. They go to Leviticus and look at all the times that it says that. And it's the thing that they bring up. So in other words, they, they derive from the law itself. And from the prophet, they read the law and the prophets together to figure out what is it that is incumbent upon the Gentiles, legally speaking. And so we're we're all Gentiles, right? Yeah. And so oh, we're, I assume my blood is So we're temples, yeah. And we have the Holy Spirit, 
and we have a high priest interceding on our behalf. And so Paul still has a high view of confession. Yeah. Like so, we're saved by faith. Yeah. It's absolutely correct. Yeah. But our obedience matters, and confession yeah. matters. Yeah. Yeah. And because you're confessing to Christ the High Priest yeah. who intercedes for you. Yeah. You're not confessing. I mean, you're confessing to the community, but that's for the betterment of yourself and the community. It's Christ the High Priest who hears your, hears your prayer and confession. One, First John says, um, uh, if, if we sin, um, we, if, and if we confess our sins, we, we have a High Priest who is faithful to forgive us. High Priest sin. Gesture to the whiteboard as if my drawing of heaven was still there. Um. So I, I have lots of questions and thoughts, but I want to hear more from you guys. So like, kind of let loose on the questions. I, I, I want to hear. If you need to go, it's not going to fit me. If you need to go, I know it's late. It's later than you probably thought. So sorry. Um, <laughs> so if you need to leave, you're not going to fit me. The thing about our current cultural moment that we're living in the context in which God wants to dwell and advance his kingdom. What are some of the thoughts and questions that you all have? Um, if we have anything, I want to hear more about the, the, the sexual issues that we all see, that we all have as humans with bodies, that we, we have our own sexual proclivities and desires that sometimes go to whack, whatever it might be. But I want to hear from y'all and think about what's going on in our world. What questions come to mind? Um, what are the tough questions? Again, like going back to John asking Jesus, no questions are off limits. It's kind of cool to hear about the confession piece. Because I'm always going, like, am I disqualified? Am I out as pastor? And it sounds like actually there's way much more grace in Leviticus than I realized and in the New Testament. That, that's 100%. Well, I, there's tons of grace in the New Testament, honestly. But that, that's, that's, the, uh, that's the deal that I just I cringe when I hear sort of the, the caricatures about OT versus Old Testament versus New Testament. Like, it's it's been. It's been Grace all the way down. Like, it, grace. Jesus didn't introduce grace. Thank God. Like, uh, and that's that's the that. I mean, so Jesus is awesome, um, and he's the one who intercedes uh, for us constantly. But so when you want when you want to think about a disjunction, right? We often think about law versus faith or law versus grace. It's been grace in the Old Testament and grace in the New. If you want to make a contrast, if you feel like the need to make a contrast for some reason. You don't have to, but if you want to, if you want to make a contrast between the Old Testament and the Testament, here's the big difference. Our high priest will never die. That high priest could only enter into the sacred space for like 30 seconds. And even when he did, he had to wave incense in front of himself. He could get to block his own view of the divine glory with incense. He had to go in with an incense thing and, and do that so that he would not see the divine glory or else he would die. Christ is our high priest who is at the right hand of the Father forever never die again. So he'll constantly, he's constantly in the presence of the Father interceding. So if you want to make a contrast, go there. Um, you don't need the grace contrast. In fact, please don't do that because you're sawing the branch off that you all want to sit on. And, I, and I, so I'll go to you. I, I, I only mentioned, I only exclusively mentioned the same-sex behavior stuff because that was sort of the, the topic we talked about. Um, I don't want, I, I would feel really bad if I were to be heard to be singling that out. Um, uh, um, the New Testament, Jesus, Paul, James, John, all the apostles, uh, care about all sexual sins. Now, one, one level, you're like, oh, great. No, you know, I have to worry about it. But like, my point is, it's like, they're not just like hammering on that thing only. In fact, that's probably one of the things that's mentioned the rarest. Um, not to say that it doesn't matter, um, but it's, uh, as often as mentioned, is all, all the other stuff. Um, adultery, 
um, us. Um, obviously, the famous teaching of Jesus, if, you, if you've been lust after a woman in your heart, you've already committed adultery. So, you know, the New Testament isn't like singling out that one behavior. Um, but I bring up is that, like as a pastor of our people, knowing that in our context, we've got people that are like LGBTQ affirming, and then we have people that are like, like why, why do you hate the Bible? I and mean, then these are things that people have said to me along the way. And so it's like, we've got to talk about it. Like, it was a public event, the cross. We've got to be able to ask our questions and be shaped and informed uh, by Christ, by the Word, by one another as we share. And so this is a great opportunity for us. So, yeah, sorry, I interrupted you. Well, you were mentioning, so covenant-breaking things that would cause God's presence to leave versus uh, commission, transgression things. So what he is saying in the New Testament, hmm. sexual Blood and idolatry are those covenant-breaking things. Are those in, in Acts 15? They're simply that's not the topic. In Acts 15, the topic is what are Gentiles obligated to do. Um, what what happens when they you know fail those obligations is not a topic of discussion in Acts 15. Um, it's simply the, the topic in Acts 15 is okay. Do they need to get circumcised and do all this stuff, or what? And then they answer, no, it's just these things. So that's not the topic of discussion in Acts 15. Um, when you get, so that's why Paul's letters are so so relevant and helpful here, is because he he has um, a for us a very um, um, he's got a great deal of patience, but he does have a, a line in the sand, as it were. Um, and so in 1 Corinthians uh, 6 is where he mentions those who do these things. And it's not just he, he says like 10 things, right? It's not just like yeah. 10, yeah. it's 10 things. It says they will not inherit the kingdom of God. Um, so it's for that reason that I think it's important to both be clear about and, um, and why I don't think it's fair when people say, oh, you're just being, you know, whatever, making too big a deal out of this, or judgmental, or whatever, I'm like, okay, fair enough, I'm making a big deal out of it, because I think that's the way Jesus and Paul talk about it. Paul says, you do not have inheritance in the kingdom of God. Um, now, that said, the other nine things he lists in the text are things that all of us do. Um, uh, he, so he mentions, you know, he mentions greed, and he mentions, uh, I think I think he mentions gossip in that same text. Um, yeah, so, the, so um, now granted, that's kind of the whole point of the whole, what's that, what's one of the many points of the Holy Spirit, is that the sacred spirit um, does actually transform you, so that you have a heart that is actually transformed, and is now single-heartedly devoted to God, such that you actually have the desire to obey God in this was commandment. Um, meaning, Paul, Paul's not like a like a naive idealist. He knows that people aren't sinless. Suddenly, the moment the Spirit hits you, you're sinless. I mean, he knows that people continue to sin. Um, that's why pastorally, um, you have to um, speak about um, uh, your willingness to um, uh, what's the word. Uh, Fight your own sin. Uh, resist it. Resist it by the power of the Spirit. Um, in the same way that I, I, mean, I don't struggle with the same sex attractions, right? That's not something that I, uh, that's not that I think I should. Um, 
but I struggle with anger. Um, I, I have a short temper, um, and Paul has a lot to say about people who are angry. Um, and so I, I have to work on um, uh, my temper. Um, and so uh, that's one very non, not sexy example, right? But I could give you other sexy examples, right? Would that be the distinction um, when we talk about how we treat it? And I say it being like homosexuality and those acts in the modern context is that I think that we can all accept that the rest of those list of nine are quote unquote sins and things that we strive not to be. But when it's approached in the modern context, that homosexuality is actually there's arguments that it's not actually a sin at all. Right, right, right. That it's it's actually something that should be accepted, celebrated, right. and part of the church body. Right. Um, and then the argument of grace for homosexuality um, goes beyond just saying like we have grace for all sinners, but actually we're going to have grace for saying that we're going to accept this act as if it was between a man and a woman. Yeah, yeah. I, I, if I tell me if, if I start to answer it in the way you didn't answer your question, just interrupt me. But um, what I think I hear you saying is there, there's a difference between sort of acknowledging that we have to ex extend, have to, and should extend grace to all people uh, who are uh, to all people. Period. And then, and that that grace extends to people who are struggling against it. Um, but that's different than someone who says this particular thing is not a sin, and I don't need to struggle against it. Exactly. Um, and yeah, I, again, this is this is where a text like First Corinthians six, um, actually similar, a text in First Corinthians four, Paul says, "Look, uh, I have committed no wrong that I'm aware of, but I'm not thereby acquitted. Acquitted um, only, to quote uh, Tupac, only God can judge me." Um, <laughs> is Paul. Wow. Paul said it first. Um, <laughs> Only God can judge me. And there's a real, and, and Jesus is the same kinds of parables. We, we, we and dares, and, and none of us are going to judge ahead of the time. Uh, God's the final judge precisely because he's the one who knows everything. Um, uh, and, and more than just because of his omniscience. But, but it's, he is the only one with the panoramic vision. Um, I don't have it. And so I consequently can't make a judgment in the sense of a final judgment. I cannot say... John, you're out. Um, it's not. It's not my role to be the executor of the final judgment. But um, I do feel the responsibility to say quite strongly that, like a text like one Corinthians six, um, it it requires that I be straightforward and honest about what I think the text is saying and about what the possibilities are of not repenting of those things, namely, uh, what he says, you won't inherit the kingdom. So uh, I'm not the one who precludes someone from the kingdom of God. It's not my role to do that. Um, it's only my role. In fact, Paul says the opposite of what we all typically say. Um, uh, Paul says, I'm not the one who's supposed to judge outsiders. Like, Paul doesn't care what's going on outside the church. He, of course, of course, like it's, of course, they're not obeying God's law. They're not God's covenant people who, they're not out, they, they, don't, they don't give up. Like, it's like, of course they're not. He goes, my job is to judge people inside the church. And, but judge, what he means by that is make them aware of what is necessary of them. And, and part of that judging is extending the grace and, and asking, you know, telling them to repent. Um, and also is warning them of what will happen um, if they go down that road without repentance. Would that not be... Does that, does that make sense? I'm trying not to, yeah. I'm trying not to like, be... I'm, <laughs> Elijah. I, I, I'm trying not to be like, 
marble mouth about it. Uh, I, I want to speak straight, but I, but, it, but it's just, it, it is one of those issues. I mean, not just oh, no, same to favor. I mean, yeah. all, all the issues, all, all the things mentioned are, are, are that. Um, because you get the same logic in, in Galatians 6. Is if anyone's caught in a transgression, confront him. Um, and then he, notice the next thing he says, he goes, but do it carefully, yeah. lest you yourself get caught in transgression <laughs> as well. Because it's, it's, he, he, in other words, he says, yeah, you've got to judge in the sense of make decisions, not judge in the sense of like be a jerk. Judges and like make decisions and make people aware of the truth, as, as obviously the Apostle Paul tells it. Um, but that he's also aware that coming, having those kinds of confrontations might lead you to think that you're above judgment. And so he says, watch out for yourself as well, lest you fall into it. Anyway, you were going to ask a follow-up. Well, the, the question is, because it's such a hot topic, or it's very difficult for Christians to express their opinion on this specific issue without coming across as hateful yeah. or not loving. Uh, and Paul does say many times that like the reproof, the judgment, the building up is for your brothers and sisters inside community, right? Like you yeah. just mentioned, he has actually as a pastor where he says, like, I don't care what people are out there, but of course they're going to be sending you're to like bind yeah. body together, right? right. So how does the church, where do we quote unquote like take a stand? Right. How do we respond to these issues if we're called to reprove each other inside community? Right. How then do you relate when you're being challenged by outsiders that are not? Oh. Like, by the same rules, right? Like. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. How do you? Uh. Yeah. Um. That, that, yeah, you take that. Yeah, um, go, Mary. I, I mean, Paul would call that persecution and say endure it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, so I, I feel like I have a lot of those kinds of conversations, and I just feel like my because they're not in the church, the point of the conversation, the point of the relationship, isn't anything that is actually in the Bible, except for to love them, and that that is like the foundation of the gospel and the foundation of what God calls us to do to everyone, no matter who they are, country, creed, whatever, Jew, Gentile, like, is the love of God. And so that's my, like, sole aim, goal, purpose, like, check mark is, mm -hmm. did I love them like Jesus loves them? Mm -hmm. And if I did that, then I can walk away knowing that, like, I've done what God's called me to do. And if they are open to having a deeper conversation about their sexuality, then, yeah, let's have that, let's have that conversation. But... I feel like to push, it's almost like what we were talking about before of like the Gentiles becoming like a Jew. Like, I don't want to push that person who's not even like a part of the family of God into something that they're not yet. Um, and so. No, yeah. I, I understand I, that yeah. on the individual level, absolutely. Okay. Like, I would never, as an corporate. individual, like, Cost of someone for their lifestyle. No, no, but like, like on, on, no, 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 like on the individual level, like that's like obviously what God calls us to is to love everybody, treat them well, and treat them just like as Christ treated us, because we're sinners in the same way, right? We have been enlightened. How does the church in America move forward by maintaining like biblical truth, which what we just kind of like established? Connecting Leviticus to the New Testament, by like protecting those walls when being like hammered by the outside into yeah. in a loving way. 
that's that's where I can don't I, know. Can I add something to what you're saying? Yeah. You can't turn, but at the yeah. same time, because I'm feeling you on what you're saying, and I, I also feel like, I don't know, as, as ministers and then as congregants, it's getting harder and harder to um, know exactly how far we're supposed to go in holding, I, holding accountable, I don't know is, is yep. the right word, but that are we under obligation as believers within the church to guard, you know, sort of the fold and, you know, we're, we're being told by the Lord to adhere to certain things and that upholds a certain level of unity and purity and peace amongst yeah. the congregation. So when those, you know, things of the world seem into the church and it becomes more like, you know, words like judgment and things are thrown around, yet, like in Matthew 18 and all kinds of things like you're talking about, there, it seems like we're under a certain level of obligation yeah. to confront, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, it's all sexual immorality. It's like, there's so right, much not, that's become yeah. so normal in our culture. Like, for a guy sure. and a girl to live together before they're married is like a normal thing. Sure. But within the church, right. like, I don't know that we guard that as much as we maybe should. Right. I just, it's sort of a giant question mark. Well, yeah. are we under any obligation? Like, yeah. at which point do we, you know, overstep bounds to where it's like we're acting as judge? Yeah. You know? Totally, yeah. I, uh, I'll go not beyond in the bad sense. I won't just I won't just quote the Bible and leave it there. So I, that's what I mean. I'll go beyond it. But um, um, hopefully not like a transgressive sense. So, but uh, but that but that, that, that's the sort of sort of community guidelines you're getting. You know, the text like Matthew 18, um, where he he says like when the person if the person commits this kind of transgression, go confront him or her about it um, and bring witnesses. Um, and you do it. I mean, now to add Paul's language, vocabulary, do it with a spirit of gentleness because you know you could be gotten the same thing. Um, um, and, and, and give them multiple chances. I mean, confront them again and again and again. If this is the sort of thing that they're just sort of saying, no, you're, you know, that's, that's, not, a, that's not something I uh, need to abide by or whatever, uh, the language of Jesus is, then treat him as an outsider. Um, now, again, that's why I say I'm going to go beyond it in the sense of um, say more than that, um, which is that in our, our context, how do, how do we treat someone who, um, who, who is not abiding by uh, the, the covenant community standards that we think the Lord is calling us to? I think we follow the same guidelines of, of, of gentle confrontation. Um, and that I think that in so doing, you're not being judgmental in the... It, you're not being judgmental in a sense beyond what God has called you to. In other words, God has called leaders to be um, congregants to be uh, to be shepherds of people. I um, mean, shepherds have to continue. Yeah, they have to um, guide your people. That's what a shepherd does. And so, can I do that now? <laughs> yeah. No, so, I'm serious. Oh, hold, okay, hold on. Go yes, I'm right after this. But, um, uh, but the problem is, and this is where I really mean this, also, I'm not a pastor, I've never been one, so I I don't want to speak beyond that, because um, I, I, you know, I've only ever had to, like, confront Elijah, 
Um, so uh, I don't know what it's like to talk to another adult human about this sort of stuff. Um, so I feel like I feel pretty comfortable giving you those sort of guidelines, and then um, and then relying on John. Yeah. So it's ten o'clock. I want to do one, two things to kind of shape, and then try and leave by like, at least wrap up this time with maybe one or two questions. So I was going to say, Paul's a theologian, and he operates in a theological context where they're, they're talking, having these conversations. For us as people that are a part of Normandy, it's 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 somewhat different. And so when you're looking at the world as it is right now, what I'm seeing um, a lot of is from Jude. Like what Jude is like, when he gets after, if you go read Jude, this tiny little book, he's like, watch out for the bad teachers. Because the teachers, it's going to incur like this apocalyptic judgment on it. Um, like it's really intense if you read Jude. It's really kind of like, nah, can you, what, what are you referencing? It's just so intense. So, um, one Enoch. So what? Yeah, one Enoch. Yeah. Okay, Enoch, who, who walked with God, and he wrote a book apparently. So anyway, so pastorally, um, like this is really like a huge opportunity for actually to become a body that people are attracted to. Um, because you can't post stuff on Instagram and expect to change people's lives and confront them. You can't like retweet something and be like, oh, I've done this thing. So you get in the pit and actually try to love people that think this way, operate this way, whatever it is, differently. So like the, the church is being slaughtered because evangelicalism, because all the leaders have been the, the, the uh, Pharisees. Robbie Zacharias. I mean, like, horrible. Like, Canica. Yeah. Horrible. Like, just completely dismantled. So when you talk about the shepherding thing, it's like, actually becoming a people that shepherd one another is going to cost something more than you're probably all prepared to pay. It's something altogether different than most are expressing. You come and you hear pastor preach, and then you don't actually come in love. Anyway, thinking about what Jenny, you're saying, how you're saying, what I'm like, like, what do we do? Is like the early church, well, they they were like really racially diverse. They were really they were really generous. Like they actually sacrificed to the point when they threw a baby on the pile, they went and got it. Like they, they lived in such a way people thought it was attractive. And like your friend and mine, Tom Wright, says like each generation has to come and like has to get fresh men. Like we can't rely on my dad or your dad or Dr. Jeffers or Paul Slo I mean, you can't rely on other people to get fresh vision from God. You've got to go chew afresh the word of God as a generation. And we do that as individuals. So we get on and read our podcast and listen to it and we're self-righteous and we hammer people. Bullcrap. But like it's it's a community event that we do together, we process together, we pray together, and we confess together, we share together. So we say, like when we get to the teaching, like the Jews, like watch out for the teachers. We confront it together. It's like something that we're doing together, and then we cast a vision that people could actually be attracted to. A way of life that they're like, there's something about that. Because they weren't doing like they were preaching the good news. They're like proclaiming the witness, like Jesus is alive. He's, he's not dead, he's alive. And then people were added to the, the, the number. And so that's like a completely different thing. So I was just talking about you, Hunter, of like, should I write a blog? <laughs> no, because my mom will read it, and then we'll about that. 
But like the way that we live together, I think could actually shape a vision for people live together and like making space where the table has like people at it. So like pastorally, I'm thinking that, and then like to uh, like I part of I think of Paul as a theologian. Like the, the deep questions that I'm just, there's not time to do it, but it's like all the this is like heaven and hell stuff and salvation. Can you lose your salvation and and, and there's all kinds of questions that are wrapped up in this thing that's like a hot-button thing for us. And so that as pastorally, I'm like visioning, shepherding, caring. Like how do we like live together in such a way that people would want to come into it? But then like just on the, the questions, I mean, I don't know if there's enough time to it. It's just like what are some of the like theological questions? Because y'all are asking a lot of practice, which is good. And not that you can't speak to practice. Um, but like just like how do we think about these things? How do we think about... Like, a friend of mine had two lesbians that came to church, and they had kids. And they were married. And, like, can they take communion? Like, what do you do? You know, like, how do you, like, how do you pastor them? How do you love them? You know, literally. Like, you know, there's men that say, uh, a couple of theologians I respect are like, I'm a gay Christian. And you say that to one generation, they lose their mind. Like, well, what do you mean? Like, well, I believe in historic Christianity's like orthodox view of marriage, but I'm gay. How do we deal with that? What do you do when you sit around in front of a girl and she says, I'm non-binary and I'm a lesbian? And then like, how do you love them and invite them into it? It's so, like, I want us to like think about those. We can't do that all now, but those are the types of things I want to hear from like the questions that you're thinking about. Like, do we keep them from communion? Do we let them do communion? Like, there's all kinds of like, how do we love them? Like, how do we think about those things? So. I don't know if there's any questions. We probably have time for like one or two, and then we'll just end. And then Paul, you, can you just answer all those things? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's kind of where I'm at. Because I'm like, yeah, this is my Lauren, do you have any questions you want to ask? Oh. <laughs> 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 that was rude. That was rude. I should not have done that. Thank you so much. All right, see. Yeah, thank you so much. No, yeah. She should not have done that. I'm so sorry. I think it's kind of important to acknowledge that, like, right now, like, our generation, I'm so sorry. Um, but I think it's important to acknowledge and understand, like, in this day and age, we have the greatest amount of, of like, outed LGBTQ, like, obviously of pride. They do not want to go to church. I don't know the last time I had a conversation with them, they most do not want to go to church because of, of yeah. wrong reactions. And so as we're talking about it in the context of a church, it's equally important to highlight the relational side of first and foremost, before I bring you to Normandy, let me bring you to my home. I think that's, it's important to talk about all these theological things and trust we can go on. Like, let's, let's go. But like equally in that acknowledging like you cannot hold the expectation of this of these people to want to come to church that this is what they've been met with. But then okay, sorry. Mm-hmm. I think we have to acknowledge that. But on a theological side, um, shit. Um, in, in a lot of churches today, there is this idea of um, the word dis something sit sin up you're not oh gosh um yeah elders cannot and pastors can't there's certain sins that don't disqualify disqualifying yes I just think and there's like these disqualifying sins right so mm-hmm. that changes from body to body and church to church but consistently homosexuality is a huge one 
because when, especially in the South, when you see a church who has a you know a pride flag and they have a gay elder, everyone's kind of like, whoa, for a second, because it's so different from what we're used to. Yeah. So, a, where does this idea of disqualifying sin come from, and how do we approach other local bodies who, who are our brothers in Christ who have these? Right. right. For you know, right. we have these gay pastors. That, okay, so how do we approach that within the body? Yeah, it's uh, a great question. In Paul, in Paul's correspondence with Timothy. Um, he talks about um, things that need that that need to characterize people in leadership, um, and so some of the things he mentions are um, about um, just the character of the person, um, and and one or two of them have to do with uh, the kind of um, family they have, what the kind of husband here he is or kind of wife she is, and also the kind of uh, at the time you know, polygamy was more of an issue, so he says you have to be the husband of one wife. Other than one woman, um, and so that's where the logic of so-called disqualifying sins uh, is is derived. Yeah. Paul doesn't use that language as far as I know. Um, then, by virtue of just the legal logic of okay, well, if, if that sin, then also this, you know. Um, so that's that's where that comes from, as far as I know. Uh, in terms of how you correspond to other bodies, um, again, I yeah. I, not a pastor. I don't know. Uh, it, it seems. I got to, my own problems. It seems to me that um, it seems to me that you're all, you're kind of constantly having to walk the line with being uh, truthful with what you believe to be true, and um, yet always realizing that part of your vocation as a Christian is to um, ex- ex- extend uh, love and gentleness toward people with whom you disagree. Um, so yeah, how, how you in terms of in, in terms of it's another practical issue of okay, well can we do this event together? I mean, uh, yeah, I, I would be the one to answer that question. Um, I guess I would say yes, but I mean, I, I, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Um, back to this qualifying, it's like as we were describing an elder, right? You have to be the husband, mm-hmm. the one, you know, all these things. Uh, it's also in Titus, if you must be blameless with children, you cannot be charged. Right. Because you're about to like. You know, are we saying that, hey, elders, if your children decide not to, you know, they go and, you know, you're not allowed to be an elder, then, like, where does that disqualifying right. really kick in? Yeah. Because yeah, yeah. we can't, I, I feel like it's critical. Right. Hey, you can't be gay, but your kids can do this, and you don't right, have to be right, right, right. you can be angry, totally. but you can't be private. Right, 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 right. Where is that? For sure. Uh, again, it's because the text is so uh, underdetermined, it's simply... You can't, what was the precise language? You have a child who is disobedient or something like that, right? It's, it's a, it's, it's a pretty, it's a, it's a term that's pretty flexible, right? It depends obviously how you define disobedience, and um, obviously I, I suspect I know how Paul might define it with respect uh, to the Jewish law, but um, but it's 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 so um, undefined that that's the basis for the many definitions, right, in our own cultural context. Um, again, I, I don't have an answer off the top of my head. Um, I suspect um, uh, the kind, because it's an issue of leadership, it's the kinds of sins that indicate you cannot lead uh, would be the kinds of things. Uh, but yeah, I probably couldn't speak further to it only because it's underdefined in, in Titus. Yeah. Two questions for you. One of them is, um, I'd just be interested in your thoughts on the difference between someone who is attracted to people of the same sex and then people who are acting on that attraction. 
yeah. in scripture and what that looks like from a theological perspective. Yeah. And the second one is kind of what we've been hitting around or talking about, I think, is what are the things that are essential and what are the things that are not necessarily essential. So for example, there's a book called The Moral Vision of the New Testament. There's a guy, Richard Hayes, wrote it. And in that book, he talks about how he is a pacifist. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't believe that a Christian can be a soldier right. because they shouldn't be taking lives. Right. He says, I wouldn't look at somebody who is a believer and a soldier and tell them they have no place in my church. Right. Because there are legitimate ways to interpret scripture and look at that. Yep. He says the same thing with respect to homosexuals. He says, I don't believe that. He says, I believe that acting on same-sex desires is uh, sinful, in my view, but I think there are people interpret that differently. Mm -hmm. So I'd just be interested in your thoughts on kind of what are the essentials there, because there's a wide range of things that goes from not just Right. Sexuality, but sure. to all of stuff, yeah. I mean, an unbelievable array of things from right. divorce to yep. everything else. And you talk about church discipline, right. and we start moving in that direction. What does that look like? So, those two thoughts. Yeah, yeah. The first one, uh, the, 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 again, to speak to the New Testament, it only ever singles out the behavior. Um, it doesn't speak to uh, someone's sort of intrinsic attraction. So, that in our own modern context, uh, uh, I, someone with, uh, I, I think that, uh, just I'll use the language of Paul the Apostle, I think Paul the Apostle would not um, use condemnatory language towards someone with the desire who did not act upon them. Um, because, just by definition, we all have desires that we, we all constantly have desires um, that we don't act upon, and the, it's typically the behavior or activity, or no, it is exclusively the behavior or activity that is uh, condemned in, in the New Testament. Not simply um, uh, with same-sex behavior, but just all you know, all those sorts of things. Now, some the obvious exception is sometimes sometimes sins are by definition in, intrinsic, right? So, like greed is a desire, right? So, don't be greedy. That, but obviously, greed has an obvious outworking, namely like working toward just making more money as your only goal, right? That's sort of thing. Uh, so, yeah, I, I think the New Testament would would distinguish between those. Um, and, uh, and, and in fact, would have to precisely because as a part of our mortality, the same things that we have that just have bodily decay, right? We have, we are, we wear out. The same thing is assumed about our mental and heart states. We just have the kinds of hearts that desire the wrong stuff. Um, and so the, the, the battle is to reorient our, our desires so that we desire the right things. Um, and in fact, that's actually called the own language. Paul, the spirit has reoriented your desires. The spirit has reoriented your affections so that they are ordered toward God. But because we still inhabit this corruptible body, we have to constantly bend it uh, To the second uh, question about essentials, um, yeah, again, I'd probably repeat myself with respect to um, some of the stuff I mentioned before about 1 Corinthians 6. I think you have to be truthful about the fact that Paul says this, you know, these eight things and says you won't inherit the kingdom of God. It sounds essential to me. Um, so because of it, because he includes the language of a, a, a negative outcome at the final judgment, that, that's what makes me call these things essential. Um, but because he also has all the other pastoral things he would say, namely that a person can repent or a person can, uh, um, uh, a person may be ignorant, right? Um, a person may be ignorant of a certain legal prohibition. Um, all those sorts of things, I think, would, and Paul's a human, right? Um, so he would understand that there are very human reasons for um, 
uh, people to still continue to commit certain sins. Um, so again, uh, that's, I, I would call it essential. Again, not simply because I have some sort of like, you know, um, uh, what's the word, uh, prejudice, um, but because Paul lists it as a behavior that precludes somebody from the kingdom of God. That, that's the reason why I, I included it as an essential thing. Um, but I would then include all the caveats about about the, the things that are available to the person, namely repentance, confession, intercession of Christ, all sorts of things. Um, did I get into your question? And then, and then in terms of how do we know? Oh, yeah, so the other thing is, uh, yeah, this is big. We haven't talked about it yet. Um, uh, which well, I'll go short, but it's easy. I mean, so that's that's a biblicistic answer. When, in other words, I gave you a scripture and I gave you a, a, a verse to, to justify my view, right? What if I didn't have that verse? Can I still justify my opinion? And the reason I think yes is because lots of the particular on issues of, of sex, but other issues as well, but particular on issues of sex, um, they are positions that are derived from the notion that God created a complementary pair of humans, so that he created a male and a female, that they belong together. Um, so that even if even if we didn't have 1 Corinthians 6, I would still say we're in central issue because of the logic of male, male, female, female, violating a creational aspect of, a, a, a fabric of God's creational, um, creation, uh, male, female. Um, so, I think that's actually what Leviticus is doing. Leviticus, the, the Jewish law, is sort of just creating prohibitions that, you know, bring God's creational aspects to their to their fulfillment or their goal. So, uh, and, and, and in the first century, um, Jesus and other Jews of this time, they read Genesis 1 that way. Namely, because God created it that way, that must indicate that was God's goal in creation. And therefore, to do anything that deviates that is to is to go against God's own goal for His creation. Um, that's why I would call it a, to use your language, an essential issue because of you're you're going against um, um, God's own goal for His own creation. Now, again, I always want to you know, include all the other caveat stuff I'd say about all the all the outs that Paul would give a person with respect to repentance and confession and all that sort of stuff. Um, yeah, did I answer that question? I think so. I think the, the question there was also like... With How do we decide with other stuff? Well, yeah, well, with like pacifism. Yeah. So, for example, saying somebody shouldn't take someone's life. Yeah. That would be an issue of blood, I would think. Right. Because you're spilling out a person's blood, which is the life. Right. Which would put it in an essential category. Right. I would think. Yeah. And, but we're okay setting in pews of people who are in the military. Yeah. Or, or there's lots of Christians who are great with the death penalty. Right. You know? Yeah. So that, because that's the thing to me that it's, and if it's, you know, Jesus looking at the woman saying, you don't have one husband, you have many husbands, and, we, you know, whatever, it's like, those are sexual issues as well right. when it comes to those issues. So yeah. I guess that's, that's the thing to me is it's like. So the whole, so the, the reason would be because um, broader context indicates what stuff's permissible and not on what grounds. So again, in the Jewish law, it prohibits anyone from spilling blood from an animal. Like, you can't even kill an animal away from the altar. That's a death penalty act. Um, uh, you have, if you slaughter an animal, it has to be at the temple um, because God wants to teach them how precious blood is. So if you slaughter an animal, it has to be at the temple. Um, also, uh, uh, in, in the Jewish law themselves, they, they have the death penalty, which indicates that though spilling blood is... Um, a, uh, an issue, um, 
there is a there is a, a God in the Jewish in the Jewish law a God given medium for uh, what we would call sort of legal state penalties. So in other words, to put it again legally, they distinguish between execution and murder, and that that that. Um, that same distinction between those events seems to carry over into the New Testament, where um, there's a distinction between different kinds of killing. Um, so, for example, uh, Romans 13, right? Paul, Paul talks about government as uh, bearing the sword of God to exact vengeance against those who commit injustice. That sounds like justifying some sort of state power against what we would call state level injustice. Is that, is that, so in other words, the broader context makes makes plain that I think there are distinctions between certain things. Like, like, not all not all blood spilling is the same. Yeah, I guess my question is when some people have, when people have different views that are informed by scripture. Or yeah, yeah. That are saying I'm somebody who believes that there should be no oh. death penalty yeah. or you know Christians shouldn't be soldiers, and then you got that, and you have the other. And they're both informed by scripture. They're both yeah. looking at it just as, as you have. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. How much room is there on the same pew, the mm-hmm. same church, for people yeah. to hold those different that's, views? Yeah. I, and, that's, and that may be a more pastoral question. No, keep going. This is but that's the same thing, whether it's with the death penalty, whether it's with grounds for divorce, whether it's with sexuality, whether there's any number of issues. How much room is there on the same pew for people to hold different views that would all say, I'm informed by scripture, yeah. mm. I'm interpreting it in different ways, and we've come to different conclusions on these things. Yet, I would say I need the salvation of Christ for sins, and everything else beyond that, where are the things that are yeah, good, things good. that we would, that, that's, that's the question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 no, that, that, that's, that's great. I mean, and again, this is why I kind of opened whatever it was 20 minutes ago with the fact that it was like two hours ago. <laughs> no, not that, not that opening. My other, my other opening about communication. My other opening about communication. The fact that interpretation is a public thing, and that on that on those grounds, some interpretations can be shown to be false. I mean, I, I don't believe that all interpretations are equally valid. Um, that's that's a, a position that is said a lot presently. Not presently here. I just mean in our cultural context. I don't think it's true in the same way that you wouldn't think it's true. Um, what, do you, what do you mean? Not all present, not all interpretations of communication events are this are this are equally valid. Not all, not all is good. So if I say, "Hey, she passed the bar," and you're like, "Wow, God, she hit a hole in one. That's awesome." You're like, "No, I didn't say that. What do you, why did you come to that conclusion? Those words don't mean that." Um, because interpretation is still it's still interpretation, but like we're always interpreting on the grounds of plausibility based on our shared assumptions about the way the language works, on the way that because of the way we. Because of our cultural assumptions. So if I say the words, she passed the bar, and you think I just said, I got over there just hit a hole in one. Everyone else would be like, you're the only one who thinks that, man. Those words don't mean that. Um, and so that's an extreme example to say that I don't think all interpretations of, of texts or communications are equally valid. It's just to say that then I think when you bring it to the level of, there's a grading scale. And so I think pacifism is just not talked about very much in the New Testament. Um, you get don't commit violence, but then there's also like the assumption that the state will continue to exact vengeance. Um, and so there seems to be a distinction between sort of, hey, if you get slapped in the face, don't slap the guy right back, but the state still has the, according to, I mean, according to Paul's Romans 13 case, right, the, the God-given authority to exact vengeance against those who do injustice. And so um, 
if that includes in a given cultural context military, and that is what that sounds like. So that's why I would say, okay, I, I'm, I understand the pacifistic arguments, uh, but I think they can be pretty reasonably shown to be non-essential based on numerous texts. So even if we would disagree, I would still be like, but that's not an essential issue because I think it could be pretty clearly shown that there's justification for these. When it comes to other issues, like say the sexuality one, uh, again, this is now my interpretation, and I know there are people in the room who probably disagree, um, but that's fine. But I, I think there's less um, debate about those. I think that um, I, yeah, I think there's less debate about those. I think it's. I hate to kind of hate to everyone use the word obvious, but I think it's pretty pretty plausibly clear what what Paul is referring to there. Um, in those various texts, and what I think um, what Jesus implicitly talks about in Matthew 19. So I, I I'm just I don't think the interpretations um, of those texts are valid. Which then means to go to the other like, so can we send the same pew? Like, yeah, there's there's a grading scale of there's a there's a grading scale of of, of of what's essential and what's not, and it takes I think pairing that with sort of the creational mandates over against. Um, the, the plethora of texts that speak to those issues. Um, but again, because I'm not a pastor, I'll let John answer the question. I'll answer it this way. we got to go. Yeah. But again, our mutual friend Tom Wright said, you in America, you, you, like a lot of times what we want is like a heaven or hell answer. Like right now. Tell me what, what you think of this situation, this situation, this situation. Are you in or are you out? And it's very American. Um, it's like left or right, Republican or Democrat. And in other places in the world, it's a lot easier to tease things out and have discussions like you're trying to do. So thank you, Paul. Hopefully this was somewhat enlightening, encouraging. Um, let's help. I'm gonna, I'll pray because I'm a pastor. But let's get the chairs back around the table, turn those things around, get your hands up, throw them at John Kelly, ask some legal questions. And if, if you want to, you can take us to the old monk or outside afterwards, but we'll get out of here. Um, Lord bless them um, and let them sleep and let all the kids sleep. And uh, Jesus, we really want to try and follow you um, humbly and help us, Lord. Uh, we love you. Thank you for all these hearts. Bless them and keep them tonight um, for the sake of your son, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, guys. Give them some light. Nope. I know, there are a lot of